Last week, as we started our summer series, uh, What's in a Name? The study of the Hebrew names of God, uh, we started off with Elohim. And we talked about the fact that, that that's a name that points to our God as creator of all things. And not only is he the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things. And we said that that's manifested in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And we see that on full display. And we talked about the fact that that means there's nothing in our lives uh, that is outside of his care and his control and his ability to bring us through it. And I hope that you were encouraged as we started that off and looked at uh, just that, that first and amazing uh, example of who and what our God is and all that's wrapped up in Elohim. Today, as we continue on in the series, we're going to talk about the name of God, El Elyon, El Elyon. And El, we, we talked about this briefly last week, um, that's just a simple Hebrew word for God that just means God. And a lot of other cultures and, and pagan nations used that word. That's not something that was unique to the Hebrew or Jewish people. Um, but what they did is they added compound words in addition to El that set him apart, that set the names of God apart. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of these compound names, El, and then there's something else after that. And today is El Elyon, and El Elyon means the Most High God, the Most High God. So in the Hebrew, I mean, it was, it was saying God, El, God who is the Most High God. That's really what, what they would have said there. And the Most High God, um, picture, picture Mount Everest, which is here on the screen for you. Uh, it's the, the highest mountain on earth. There's no, no mountain higher. Um, and there's a lot of other mountains that are big and that are tall and high, but nothing comes close to Mount Everest. When I was uh, out in Colorado for a church planting conference, um, as I came into the airport and was making my way to uh, the place where we were all going to be staying for this conference, uh, as I was getting ready to plant my church, which I did before I came here, um, I was on my way to, to Nebraska, but I had to fly into Colorado. And so we were making small talk, me and the other church planters, and you know, you ask where everybody's from, and, and I said, I'm from West Virginia. And they said, wow, you've come a long way. I said, yeah, I, I sure have. And they said, what is it that you're, you're known for? Like, what's the kind of the nickname of your state? And, and I said, it's the mountain state. And they said, why is it called that? And I said, well, have you, have you been? And he says, yeah, we, we've done the, the rafting and some of the stuff around there and mountain bike riding, um, but we never really saw any, I mean, actual mountains. And I said, what are you talking about? And I started naming all the different mountains. And they were from Colorado, though. And they kind of pointed, you know, said, well, what did you see when you were flying in? And then they started talking about all these other mountains that, that are there, and they pointed to them, you know, through the windows. And, and I had to give it to them. You know, we probably should really be called the Hill State com- compared to other places. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think of these as, as really beautiful mountains, and I love it, but comparatively, we really don't have mountains, you know? Um, and that's kind of the idea here. Not that, not that there's any truth to saying that there are other legitimate gods that just aren't as good of a god as God is. That's not what we're saying at all. 
Um, it's really pointing to the real versus the counterfeit. So when, when El Elyon is used of God, it's saying he is the God over all little g gods, over all fake, artificial, pretender gods. It's the real versus the counterfeit. Just want to make that clear. He's supreme over all rulers, over all kingdoms, over all other lesser authorities. He's the source of it all. And all authority and all rule comes from him and is under him. That's all that, that this great name suggests. And that's just the surface, really. The Most High God. And the Bible provides two powerful examples that can really help us to see and to grasp um, the significance of this, this great name for God. The first example is found in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 4. And a little bit of backstory, a little bit of context to set this up. Uh, this is before Saul, before David, before Solomon, and the nation of Israel was still being ruled by various judges. And this is in the days, the last days, of Eli. And Samuel, when he was a boy, was brought to Eli to serve uh, in the tabernacle, to learn the ways of, of the priesthood, to learn the ways of being a judge. And that's kind of the, the time frame we're looking at. And Israel went out to war with the Philistines, but they didn't make sure that their lives were right before God. Uh, Eli had allowed his sons to just do a lot of damage and a lot of spiritual corruption with the people, and, he, and it went unchecked. And God said through Samuel, I'm going to judge your house, Eli. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge your sons, and I'm actually going to judge the, my people Israel to get them to turn from their sins, to turn from their wickedness, and to turn to me, there's going to be some bad, dark days ahead. So they went out to war against the Philistines. They brought the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, with them into battle, thinking, you know, here's our good luck charm. This is what we need to be victorious. The Philistines at first said, oh no, they've, they've brought their God in the camp. What are we going to do? And the Philistine general said, you're going to fight like men. Come on, go at it. Don't worry about it. And because God handed Israel over to the Philistines, sure enough, having the Ark of the Covenant didn't really matter at that point. So Israel was defeated. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, which bolstered them even more. You know, they said, all right, we, our God has defeated their God. I guess our God was stronger all along. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant into their pagan temple. So that's where we pick up. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. You know, because again, they're saying, our God, Dagon, was victorious over the God of the Hebrews. So we're going we're gonna to memorialize that. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, and you just got to love this part, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Nobody had done that. Nobody snuck in and pushed this big statue over in the middle of the night. 
Someone did, but it wasn't a mortal. It wasn't a human. It was God himself that did that. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place because, you know, he needed their help, right? So they, they returned him to his place. And verse 4 says, when they got up early the next morning, so they've, they put him back. They thought, oh, wow, I guess that was a fluke. I guess the foundation wasn't secure enough. He fell down. I guess we'll, we'll put him back and everything will be fine. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands, all of which signified strength, were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. <laughs> wow. That I mean that was just that was great. Wasn't I I hope I hope God somehow um takes kind of like home video of these events cuz I would love when I get to heaven to ask him to show that to me and just to see the look on on the Philistines faces. I mean, wouldn't that be priceless? So that's what happened. And you know what that tells us what that shows us and points to us uh, again and again and just it just loudly proclaims that there is no limit to God's power, and there's no power that can limit His glory. There's no limit to God's power, and there's no power on earth, above the earth, under the earth, anywhere, anytime, that can limit His glory. These Philistines thought they had one over on on God, on Yahweh, on El Elyon. They thought that they had defeated the Israelites and their God, and that their puny pretender at a God was victorious. And God said, I don't think so. Watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you that I am the most high God. There's no other God at all, and there's certainly no God like me. I'm it. I'm the only one. And you're going to recognize that one way or the other. It also reminds me and provides a connection in my mind, and I hope you'll see this, with what the Bible tells us in the New Testament is going to be true, is true, and is going to be true of our Lord Jesus personally. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that because Jesus, who was fully God, totally equal with the Father, every bit God as He was. Though that was true of Him, though He possessed the full divine nature, Philippians 2 tells us He emptied Himself of His divine privileges. And He took on, He added to His deity, humanity, taking on the form of a slave, becoming obedient even to the point of death. On a cross. And the Bible tells us in Philippians 2.9, therefore, because of that, because Jesus humbled Himself in that way, because He was so obedient, because He was the ultimate servant, He went to the cross, because of that, God the Father exalted Jesus above every other power, above every other authority, giving Him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow on earth 
in heaven, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Greek kurios, and it means absolute, complete, total, master, or sovereign. It's an equating term, putting it on the same level as the Yahweh term of the Old Testament. That He is God. That He is the Supreme One. The Highest One. The, the totally exalted One to the glory of the Father. And that promise is that one way or the other, everyone at some point will acknowledge who and what Jesus is. Either willingly or without their consent without their desire, they will still be forced to acknowledge who He is. They'll be forced to acknowledge His kingship, His divinity. And so the question really before all of us, before we go any farther, is has your knee already bended before the Lord Jesus? Has your tongue already proclaimed Him, yes, you are the Lord and you're my Lord? Has there ever been a point in your life where you've done that? Where you've come to the place of complete submission before personally and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you holding off on that? Are you waiting for some unknown reason? Or is it just out of rebellion? We certainly see that all around us. We certainly see that in our society, in our culture. We don't have to look very far to see people who are already saying, no, I will not bow the knee to Jesus or anyone else. I'm my own person. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the commander of my own fate. So deceived. What a lie. That's not true of anyone. And we see all kinds of people who are saying, no, I will not bow to this Jesus. Well, one day they will. One day they will. One day everyone will. And right now there's the opportunity to willingly do that before you're forced to do so in judgment. Something to consider for sure. But this passage and all kinds of others throughout God's Word and and example after example in your own life and in my life shows us that there's no limit to God's power and there's no power that can limit His glory. No matter what people come up with, no matter what people try to put up in front of God or put up on the same level as God, no matter what society says or questions or doubts or does, no matter what the enemy tries to do by way of strategy, nothing will overcome or be able to topple God's purpose, God's plan, or His power. He reigns supreme above it all. The second example that we see in Scripture of, of the, all that's wrapped up with and, and the reality and the truth of this great name, El Elyon, comes to us in the book of Daniel. And it's in Daniel chapter 4 that I want to draw your attention to, Daniel 4, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 2 and 3 and then also jumping uh, ahead to verses 34 and 37. This uh, is surrounding the king Nebuchadnezzar. And for a lot of you, or if not most of you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that name is familiar and probably some of his story. He's the king that just a little bit before this account was the one that decided it would be a really good idea 
to put up a statue in his likeness. A big, huge statue that everyone in his entire kingdom, really uh, the known world at the time, would all have to bow down before and worship at a set time. There would be music that would play that would let everybody know, okay, it's time. It's time to bow down before this statue. And everybody would just praise and worship the statue, which was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we're praising and worshiping you. The statue was a way of getting everybody to say, we're viewing you as God. And in fact, the, the edict that came about behind this statue, this law, this rule, said that. It said, we're going to all say there's no God, there's no ruler that is worthy of honor and praise and prayer like you are, Nebuchadnezzar. And rather than saying, what, you guys are crazy, I'm not a God, I'm just a man, you're stupid. No, instead of that, he said, sounds good to me. And so he put up this big statue and he commanded everyone everywhere to worship him. And there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were faithful to the Lord God, part of the captivity along with Daniel that, were, that was taken from Judah. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We don't care what you tell us. We don't care what edict comes our way. We don't care how you imagine yourself. We know there is one God. His name is El Elyon. He's the Most High God. We will bow only to Him. And the consequence for that decision was that the fiery furnace was heated much hotter than ever before. They were going to be thrown into it. But they didn't die. In fact, the Bible points to us that the Lord Jesus Himself came into the fire, protected them, and brought them out. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty amazed by that. And he said, I guess I was wrong. I guess your God is God. I guess we need to honor and praise and glorify Him. What was I thinking? Sounds good, right? Unfortunately, that didn't last long. And it was clear that he didn't truly regard and set apart in his heart God as the Most High God because surrounding this passage, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it was a, it was a terrible dream. It was a nightmare. It was full of, of uh, destruction and calamity, and he didn't know what it meant. And so here comes Daniel, the interpreter of dreams, and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream and the images you saw were about you. And this is God giving you the chance to turn from your pride, to turn from your own ego, to recognize he truly is the most high God, El Elyon. He's given you a chance to repent, and what you saw in the dream will happen if you don't repent, but you've got a year to do that. Please, Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Humble yourself before the Most High God. Well, it obviously went in one ear and out the other because Nebuchadnezzar was walking around in his palace, and he was just taking a big panoramic view of Babylon, and he said, wow, look at this. Is, th is not this Babylon the great that I have built, that I have constructed? There is no city, no people, no place like this on earth, and it's all from my hands. Look at what I've done. Look at me. Yay, me. And the Bible says, at that very hour, what had been prophesied and communicated by way of this dream took place. And that Nebuchadnezzar was taken away from his kingdom. He was taken away from men. 
He was, his sanity was taken from him and he became like an ox or a cow crawling around on all fours, eating grass in the dirt. His hair grew covering his body. His nails grew like eagle's talons, it says. And I mean, he was in pretty bad shape. And um, what this probably was, was a disorder called boanthropy. It's actually a diagnosed, recorded, true disorder and disease where someone actually believes that they are a cow or an ox. And they'll actually literally go around eating grass and, I don't know, mooing, I guess. That's probably what happened, that God inflicted this disease on him. I mean, I'm not saying that had to be it. God could have just done it. But um, many times God uses, you know, real things uh, to, to bring about uh, his purpose or his promise. And that's probably what happened here. Um, so after this is happening, at one point, Nebuchadnezzar, by God's work and by his grace, is, a, is a, able to wake up out of this. And, and he's able to have enough sanity to recognize his situation and enough sanity to recognize God finally and fully. And that's where we pick up. Daniel 4, verse 2. It has seemed, this is the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God, there's that word, El Elyon, has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. At the end of the days, he's talking about that judgment, and that was actually seven years. At the end of the days, seven years, which shows that it took a long time for Nebuchadnezzar to truly be humbled. He was pretty um, bull-headed. You're welcome. At the end of the day, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed or praised the Most High El Elyon and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth all the inhabitants of the earth, are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Amen. Man, what would it be like if all of our rulers and all of our authorities, all of our presidents and all of our senators and congressmen and mayors, if they responded to God in this way, what would that look like? Man, we would, we would be in really good shape, wouldn't we? 
Well, you know what? If it was possible for Nebuchadnezzar, it's possible for them. And 2 Chronicles 7.14, the promise to us is, if my people, which are called by my name, will turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and I will turn and heal their land. We are definitely living in days and in a land that needs tremendous healing. Not just of a physical nature. Sure, we need to pray for all the COVID-19 to be mercifully taken from us, absolutely. But we have diseases and pandemics much deeper and much more serious and much more pervasive than coronavirus. Amen? We have the epidemic and pandemic of sin and hatred and evil that is on full display, eclipsing any of the most horrible example of coronavirus. And only El Elyon is able to take care of that. Only El Elyon is able to restore and provide lasting healing. And it starts with genuine humility. And that starts here, right here in my heart and in your heart. We can't pray and ask God to to work in other people's hearts and to give humility if we're not asking the same thing and if we're not willing to be humbled ourselves. And sometimes the very best thing that God can do for someone is to put them face down in the dirt, to let them hit rock bottom so that they have literally nowhere else to look but up and to see Him. Because it's often in our low points that we start to view God in the right ways. It's often in our low points where that happens. In, in the very lowest points of life, when everything else has left us, when all the things we're depending on and looking for for fulfillment, all the things we're turning to for satisfaction abandon us and leave us and desert us. And we finally realize there's no one else, there's no person, there's no relationship, there's no hobby or profession, there's no habit that can fulfill me and give me purpose and give me hope and give me joy. It's only found in God. And many, many times it takes hitting that rock bottom. It takes being in those low points of life for us to snap out of our stupor and realize who God really is. And so sometimes the most merciful, gracious, loving thing God can do is to bring us down to that low point. Because he knows it's in our low points that we might actually start to see God in the right ways. That we might view him in the right ways. Maybe that's been your story. Maybe that's your story right now. Maybe you've been wondering, why has God allowed this and this and this to come into my life? And why is God allowing so many different things to bombard me? I mean, I'm just hit left and right. Everywhere I turn, it seems like I'm under the weight of some horrible circumstance. Maybe that's true of you. I don't know. And if it is, maybe that's the question you're asking. Why? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you bringing me through this experience? And maybe it's because 
He needs you to get to a low, low point so that you can actually start to see God in the right way. El Elyon means Most High God, but it also means Exalted One. It means Possessor, Owner, and Ruler of Heaven and Earth. In other words, He's the boss of everything and everyone. He's the boss of everything and everyone. Psalm 24.1 tells us this, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. Psalm 46.10, God says this, Be still. Be still. Man, that's, that's a word for our day, isn't it? More violent, dangerous protests. Last night, shutting down the interstate in Atlanta. If you've been in Atlanta and around Atlanta, you know how detrimental shutting that major interstate down would be. Setting fire to cars. Riot after riot, protest after protest, hate after hate expressed. Be still, God says. God says that to you and me into our hearts and our minds that are so prone to anxiety, especially in these days. Be still and know with certainty, with confidence, with assurance that I am God. I will be. Not not just I, I hope to be, I might be if circumstances line up the right way. No, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's something that no riot or protest or societal breakdown or terrorist organization, foreign or domestic, no presidential or party agenda will ever be able to stop or overcome. God will be exalted in the earth among people. His glory will be on display seen throughout the earth through every circumstance. And that means that all of humanity, not just the Christian, all of humanity, not just the Christian, is accountable to God in all areas of life. There's nothing outside of or beyond His purview or domain. We all answer to Him. And if you think about it, that's really humanity's problem with God, isn't it? The fact that all of humanity is accountable to God, answers to Him, and is responsible to Him as their creator, first of all, but also as their ruler and owner. God is the owner and operator of our lives. That's why... Uh, the safe house refers to the Bible as the owner's manual. He's the owner of me, and this is his manual for what he wants from and for my life, right? And that's really humanity's problem with God. Humanity doesn't like the idea that we have to answer to anybody. 
Humanity doesn't like the idea that I am accountable to a much, much, much infinitely higher being than I am that has the absolute ability to call the shots in and over my life. We don't like that. We bristle at that. That's really humanity's problem with God. And the rejection of God's rule is at the heart of atheism and evolution, which, by the way, go hand in hand. Atheism and evolution, they're, they're right there together. But the rejection of God's rule is at the heart of atheism. It's at the heart of evolution. And it is the root of all rebellion in man. You look at every example of evil in man. You look at every example of wickedness. You look at every example of sin. And at the root of all of that is rebellion. It's rebellion against a holy, righteous, most high God. And every other thing that comes after that is just an attempt by man to replace God in their life with something else, with a lesser God. Everybody, listen, listen, everybody serves and worships something. You either serve and worship the Most High God, the one true God, El Elyon, or you serve and worship a a faulty, puny attempt or artificial example of God. That may mean you worship yourself. Atheism is really humanism. It's putting yourself in place of God, saying that you have infinite, absolute knowledge so much so that you know there's no God. And then by doing that, you're saying you have the ability to, to know that for sure, which means you're God. And you live for yourself, so you're, you're glorifying and honoring and worshiping yourself. Evolution goes right along with that. It says that there's, there's no real order, there's no real artist, there's no designer behind all this, there's no one person or being that we all have to account to and answer to. Therefore, live however you want, for tomorrow we die. And every other attempt, when you refuse to acknowledge God, every other attempt at happiness and fulfillment in life is really an attempt to fill the void and the hole and the vacancy in your life that only God can fill. And only He's worthy of filling. Friends, because because God is this name, because He is what this name captures and conveys to us and represents, because He is El Elyon, He is uniquely qualified to say, have no other gods before me as he did in Exodus, as he does in the Ten Commandments. He's uniquely qualified to be able to say that rightfully, to say that, to demand that, because he is El Elyon, the Most High God, the possessor and ruler of all things. He's exclusively deserving of our highest devotion. But it's also because he also says that. He also says have no other gods before me, because he knows we, all of us, we need him to be the most exalted thing in our life. 
God doesn't just say, have no other gods before me because he has some ego that needs satisfied. That's not what's behind that. God doesn't say, worship and fear me alone just because he's insecure. Not at all. First of all, it's because he's worthy, exclusively so. But secondly, it's because he knows we need that. We need him to be the most exalted thing in our life because only when that's true, only when he is the most exalted thing in our life, only when that's true are we truly right. Only when that's true, that he's the highest thing in our life, are we truly right. Only time that happens. To all of you here, to all of you watching this on video, we need to understand and believe that the throne of our heart was designed for only one occupant, its creator and savior. The throne of our heart, which we try to fill with so many other things and put so many other lesser things on, the throne of our heart was designed for only one occupant, its creator and savior. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are so easily like Nebuchadnezzar, so full of pride, so full of arrogance. And we can so easily look to other things, other sources of worship, other sources of glory, other sources of honor, other sources of satisfaction and fulfillment. And we, we can so easily try to put all these other things on the throne of our heart, and they just won't fit. They'll never fit because the throne of our heart was designed by our designer and only he is worthy of occupying it. What that means for us, Christian, is that this requires us to be constantly self-aware. What am I putting on the throne of my heart this moment, the next moment? What am I pursuing today and tomorrow What am I allowing to build up in my heart and over my heart? What am I allowing to rule and dominate my mind? It requires us to be constantly self-aware. But, but, we also, we also have to be constantly dependent on the revealing and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We can't just be self-aware. It doesn't end there. Yes, we have to be self-aware, but we have to be constantly, as we're, we're self-aware, we have to be constantly saying, Holy Spirit, we have, we have to say with David in Psalm 139, verse 23, Holy Spirit, Lord God, search me, search me, O God, and know my heart. That needs to be the cry of our heart. Search me and know my heart, God, please. Because my, my being self-aware of, of where I'm at and what I'm putting in my heart will only carry me so far, my heart can be so easily deceived. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So I need you to search my heart. I need you to rule my heart. That's what David was saying. We need to say that with him. 
And we need to say that, and that needs to be a constant prayer of ours and, and a constant mindset and a constant position of our heart because as John Calvin so accurately diagnosed, the human heart is a continual idol-making factory. The human heart is a continual idol-making factory. One idol might get recognized as, as that, as an idol, and we might, you know, we destroy it, take it down and destroy it and throw it away and say, okay, God, reign and rule in my heart supremely and uniquely and exclusively, and we're good, and we go for a while and we're good, but then what happens? We find another idol, and we put it on display, and it's just this perpetual reality that we deal with. The human heart is a continual idol-making factory. That's why we've got to continually bring our heart at the feet of Jesus and say, you, you destroy all the idols in my heart so that you can reign exclusively and supremely as your rightful, in your rightful place and as is your right to do and as I need you to do. That's why, church, we have to continually raise the white flag of surrender over our lives, over our mind, over our heart, over our soul. We have to constantly raise that, that white flag saying, I, I give everything I am to all that you are. I yield completely to you, El Elyon. So that needs to be the, the battle cry over our entire lives, church, where everything in us says, you are the Most High God, not just intellectually, not theologically, not in some Hebrew name, but no, right here, right now, in and over my life, you are the Most High God, and I'm going to be constantly pursuing you in that way, constantly yielding control and all that I am to you so that you can remain that in me. Is that your desire? I hope it is. I pray it is. And the good news for all of us is we have the ability to not just have that as our desire, but to follow through with it and have that define our lives by the power of God in us all through our Lord Jesus. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we saw today by way of baptism. We saw in a, in a vivid picture right in front of our eyes of a life that has said, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. I want to live for you. I'm following you. And here is my, my physical expression of that spiritual reality. Father, may that be true of all of us. May the awesome humility in this pagan, wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, that we read about that happened in his life where he finally and fully, thankfully, did turn to you and say, no, I'm not the Most High. You are. And I finally figured that out. And I need you to be. And I want you to be. May, may what we saw in his life be on display in our lives. May there be no one higher, no one greater, no thing that we're clinging to more than you. May You truly be the Most High in our lives. And as we humble ourselves continually, as we repent from our idolatry in a thousand different forms and a thousand different ways, as we constantly repent of all of that, and as we, Your people, humble ourselves 
and turn to you and pray. May you bring about true, lasting, spiritual healing and humility all through our land. May it be that we see our leaders truly humble themselves before you. May we see our cities and communities truly humble themselves before you. May we see all of this desperation and darkness that we are inundated with right now. May we see you using that to turn an entire people to yourself. May we see the light and glory of all that you are just overwhelming and crushing and driving away this despair and darkness that is before us. But Father, it really does start with us in our own hearts. So may you search and know our hearts. May you rid our hearts of everything that is raised up against you. May you rule supremely and consistently. Father, may we every moment of our lives say to you and and follow up with genuineness. Here, I'm raising my white flag of surrender. I am no longer trying to rule and run my life. I want you to. I'm giving up. I'm giving all of me to all of you. May that be true of every one of us. And it's in Jesus' name and for his name that I pray. Amen.